Greetings, unreformed drinkers of the planet Jakku. My name is Kion Wolf, and I've traveled long and far from a distant public radio system. Uh, hi there, purple and green individual. I I'm looking for a certain... I don't like you. He doesn't like you either. I hate you. Well, we... We all have our likes and dislikes, so um, I was wondering if you happen to know the whereabouts of Patrick Scahill? Never heard of him. Feinsman Patrick Mentop of the Scahilloids, uh, the, the high priest of the Jal Shea Brotherhood of Test Reparation? I think he means old Patty Poopface. The one with the moisture farm down past the old Jedi Temple? He's an odd one, old Patty Poopface. Doesn't talk to strangers. Oh, that's not a problem. I am no stranger. A new dawn begins. The twin moons of my adopted planet etch the landscape in soft blue light, and the green sun climbs above the horizon, bathing the fields in possibility and choice. <gasps> Patrick! Uh, how, how, did you, how did you find me here? There's no time. We need you back home. You have to come back and produce one more Colin McEnroe show. Don't say that name. Many suns and moons have I spent making my mind as flexible and strong as the wood of the Rashir tree. That name can only drag me back to chaos and confusion. But Patrick, only you can produce a show about Star Wars. I don't do that stuff anymore. Please, Patrick. Well, I would maybe consider it if there was going to be a serious discussion of midichlorian levels and how they affect Force users. How can Count Dooku have 13,500 when Obi-Wan himself has only 13,400? Yeah, we are totally talking about that. Really? Okay, well, then I'm coming with you. Let me pack some things. Wait, just a second! Oh, no. You were supposed to fix the Igno motor in the grinder droid. How am I supposed to make Gover juice? Oh, I forgot about that. And how about the broken beeper in the Mechno oven? Honey, look, I know I promised, Get but... Get back inside, Bantha Brain. I'll handle this. Huh. I didn't realize he was married. You know what really fries my circuits? This is all just a big game to you people. I'm trying to hold a family together here. In real life! Wow. I had no idea this was real life. Anyway, we'll do the show without him. Get ready for the greatest Star Wars discussion of all time. And now, hardly anybody shows up for his Zumba classes on the Death Star. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, so we are going to do the greatest uh, Star Wars discussion of all time. And, and let me just sort of kind of set the scene a little bit. I, I, I have a memory that I, I guess I can place in 1980. I was working at a nearby newspaper. The film critic Malcolm Johnson came back from seeing the second. The, the, the numbering system of Star Wars movies is one of the most annoying things about it. So it was the second Star Wars movie, but it's actually episode five. So anyway, he, he just – Empire Strikes Back. He'd just seen it and he was bowled over by it and he said, now I understand why I have to go on living so I can see all these other Star Wars movies. And it was kind of becoming clear you know, how they were going to come out and that there were going to be more of them. They were, I think maybe even at that point he might have known they were going to go back to one, two, and three. But anyway, contained in that joke was also – or that remark. It was a flip remark. But there was also that notion that we used to have. You had to wait for things, right? You had to wait. You'd see a Star Wars movie and then you'd wait a few years and then you'd see another Star Wars movie. Um, except that culture was about to change. I mean it wasn't going to change. That wasn't going to go away exactly. But culture was about to change in a really uh, unusual way in the sense that Star Wars maybe – I think much more than any franchise that ever came before it was going to develop this this mushrooming collateral and derivative world of lots
lots of other stuff. You know, there was going to be there were going to be video games. There were going to there were going to be novels and novelizations. There were going to be um, comic books and graphic novels. And some of it started almost immediately. I think in 1978, after the first Star Wars movie, Alan Dean Foster wrote um, a kind of a Star Wars novel that kind of went in between. I think the two movies. However, I shouldn't be saying any of this because I don't know what I'm talking about. And four people sitting in the studio eminently do. Uh, uh, we should say that all of them will be part of an event at the Mark Twain House tonight that we're going to tell you about in just a second. Um, actually, they're, they're going to be at the Manu- Emanuel Congregational Church tonight at 7 p.m. under the auspices of the Mark Twain House uh, for something called Mark My Words Five in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, but right here in the studio are Timothy Zahn, science fiction novelist, best known for the Thrawn trilogy, one of the things that really did sort of kick off the Star Wars so-called expanded universe. Jason Fry, writer, editor, journalist. He's written more than two dozen Star Wars books and short stories, including Star Wars, The Essential Guide to Warfare and Star Wars, The Essential Atlas. Mike Stackpole, a science fiction and fantasy writer who's best known for his Star Wars and Battletech books, especially his Star Wars X Wing series, and Ryder Wyndham, uh, a writer and author of over 60 Star Wars books. One of his reference books, Star Wars, The Ultimate Visual Guide, spent three weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. So in, in some ways, I'm kind, I've, I've kind of already answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And I'll, I mean, a couple of you maybe can sort of uh, help out, but, but Ryder, I'll just start with you. Um, for some people who listen to public radio, God help them. You know, Star Wars is just six movies probably and and maybe they understand there's a couple of other things. They probably don't understand this notion of an expanded universe and, and maybe nobody can map out its entire architecture. It's pretty big right now. But can, but can you give us a sense of, of the breadth of what's out there right now, the, the things that you and your three colleagues here contribute to? Uh, well, b- because we all work on books um, – Gosh, how to put that? The expanded universe is essentially uh, anything that's not on screen in the movies. So, I mean, it could be books, comics, toys, computer games. Um, and uh, I guess what? We contribute to the expanded universe by way of the books, but the books, you know, there, there are action figures based on characters that only uh, that, that were introduced in novels. Um, there's <laughs> And uh, comic book stories that are... I mean, similarly, you know, spun off from from the the characters that we create for the the books. So um, it uh, what it there's a uh, yeah. I mean, there's I, I can think of. I'm just overwhelmed by like how many <laughs> thinking like how many you know things that I've done have sort of wound up sur- surprising me later. You know, just walking into a store and like, oh my gosh, they made a toy of that guy that. That you thought up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, right, so, so. and so, Michael Stackpole, this is one of the ways in which Star Wars is different, right? The, from a lot of things that might otherwise be comparable. This just didn't happen with, say, Lord of the Rings. There really isn't much of anything, uh, uh, that at least that I'm aware of, that's not fan fiction. There's nothing really that somebody named Tolkien didn't write, right? That, that, and there certainly aren't characters that, that other people have been allowed to invent. I mean, is there anything else like this? I mean, things that have come along since what you guys have done maybe are like this, but did this create a whole new kind of literary marketplace? Well, this certainly was new because uh, George Lucas retained all the merchandising rights to the films, which was 
just pretty much unheard of uh, back before then. So he had the ability to to license things into multiple areas, and Lucasfilm managed it very, very well. But Lucasfilm also, when we were working on things, and, and Ryder was my first editor at Dark Horse Comics, so while I was working on novels, I would be talking with Tim about stuff that we were tossing between our novels. Mm-hmm. There would be things in the comics that I was doing for Dark Horse that would feed back into the novels or would pull out of other people's stories. And this was all encouraged by Lucasfilm. And, and this is the also unique thing about Lucasfilm. Uh, up to that point, Star Trek had adopted a we-don't-really-care-about-continuity way of licensing things. Each novel they did, each comic book stood on its own, and it didn't necessarily build on anything else. With Lucasfilm, they tracked every fact and, and literally, when I would send my manuscripts in, both the comics and the, and the novels, they would be footnoted with where I had pulled things from just so they would all fit in that continuity. And the fans eat that continuity up. So when they've been reading a comic or they've been reading a novel and they can find that action figure, uh, all of a sudden for them, this is a big thrill because it connects some dots for them. And it really makes them feel that they've got a, a bigger part and it, and it helps to that total immersion which is what you get. And really, Star Wars has been the, the first phenomena where you get that total immersion ability. And you mentioned Star Trek, uh, Michael, and it, it does seem that, once again, my knowledge of this is, 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 is not maybe what it could be, but, um, m- but my sense of those Star Trek things was that they pretty much relied on the stable of characters Absolutely. that had been introduced on television. There was no notion that you were going to create new... There, there, was no, there was no independent continuity. I, I actually worked on a... Uh, Star Trek, the, 50, uh, the 15th anniversary or 20th anniversary computer game. And I remember talking to the Paramount rep because we wanted to pull some things. They were very strange. We wanted to pull things out of the original series. Uh, and they wouldn't let us do that and mess with or add backstory to original stuff. They wanted us to create little things all by ourselves, but then those would die and they would just stay in that little pocket universe. Whereas with Lucasfilm, you created something. If you were going to kill it off, you'd get the question of, do you have to? Because we might be able to use it elsewhere. <laughs> um, I want to go back to that. I want to go back to that, that whole question. But um, I want to ask uh, the others of you on the panel. Uh, okay, so one reason that this happened was what Michael just said. On the other hand, uh, Timothy Zahn, are there other reasons why Star Wars lent itself to this kind of expansion, this constant uh, evolving reimagining of the stories? Well, for one thing, it's a, a huge universe that uh, George Lucas created. We see maybe half a dozen to a dozen planets, reference to a few more. Uh, but it's a big galaxy. There are always places to go. Um, there are side characters and there are characters you can invent, as, as Mike was talking about, that will fit into the continuity. Um, yeah, no, Another thing about the Star Trek thing, not only were they kind of ignored from major continuity from the the people I've talked to who've done Star Trek books. They typically wanted you to leave everybody at the end basically like you found them at the beginning. <laughs> so they they there was no addition. You couldn't have somebody get married and that would show up later down the line. Uh, with Star Wars, we've had major events, major character births, you know, deaths, etc. So as Mike says, this is an ongoing, it, it feels real, like a, a real evolving universe, mm-hmm. a evolving galaxy where things happen and there are consequences of, of, of those things. And uh, just makes it feel more real than 
just little episodes out of uh, the characters' lives. And and Jason, I also wondered. I mean, maybe this is totally spurious, but uh, I I also wondered whether one thing that might have started this ball rolling and then it just gathered its own momentum was the fact that this is a slightly unusual creative origin story compared to some of the other things to which we might compare it in the sense that George Lucas is a filmmaker first, not a writer. So ordinarily you have something being adapted for the screen and and it has to lose things. It has to be trimmed. So Tom Bombadil gets cut out of Lord of the Rings because there's no room uh, for all this stuff. Whereas what Lucas was doing was writing screenplays, which therefore weren't as rich and as detailed as a novel, which left an so in in a sense you guys were in a position to add things in. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of it. I think it also goes to the aesthetic of Star Wars, which was something we hadn't really seen. That uh, you know, science fiction before Star Wars tended to be kind of gleaming ships and perfect uniforms and everything like that, and Star Wars was this kind of rusting, battered, lived-in universe. And I think that was immediately different, but also really lent itself to fan questions and wondering. How did the Millennium Falcon get that way? Where did these characters come from? So, you know, as opposed to kind of a a perfect Star Trek uniform and a, you know, perfect white bridge, you were constantly wondering, where did these things come from? And I think storytelling was very natural to come out of that from the very beginning. Yeah, I I think Star Trek is very much about sort of how people work together, right? Star Trek is, you know, it's about your workplace. I always say that you know, Star Trek, the next generation is where you wish you worked, you know, because Captain Picard's very reasonable and nice, you know, and everybody gets along and they respect, respect one, another's, one another's differences. The original yeah. Star Trek, that's where you really do work, where, you know, the boss is sort of sexually out of control and violent and, and capricious in his decision making. And then there's this other guy who's like estranged from his emotions, who makes all kinds of important decisions about your fate. And the tech people are lying to you. Scotty's like a big liar, you know. But so Star Wars is something else, right? Star Wars is kind of inherently about maybe it's, it's so big now because of what you guys have done. But, you know, Michael, it was at least initially inherently about the frontier, well, it's about the frontier, which makes it very, very American. Um, it also uh, obviously has a, a strong tradition of, of rebellion and rebellion against a set society. Um, and a lot of people will point to the, the Ronin and Samurai films that, that George Lucas liked. But that's also very much the, the Western theme, uh, both of, of literally historical Westerns and then go back to Robin Hood and, and, and that. that. That outlaw tradition has always been really, really uh, attractive in, in stories. And, and Timothy Zahn, one of the things that obviously gave the first iteration of Star Wars a lot of its thrust, and, and much was made of it, maybe too much, I, I don't know, was this sense also that, that, you know, that Lucas was harnessing the so-called monomyth. You know, this, the, there was a lot of back and forth uh, mutual admiration going on between him and Joseph Campbell. Uh, and Lucas was sort of saying, you know, he'd read the hero with a, a thousand faces. He understood this primal myth that he was now telling that involved calls and refusals and, and trips to the underworld and, and relationships with fathers and things like that. Um, you guys have had to sort of carry that forward. And is it possible to keep that kind of mythic thrust going? I mean, there's so many different things that you're doing. I'm assuming you can't really, it can't all be Joseph Campbell stuff. No, but we are talking about um, universal themes. We're talking about love, courage, sacrifice, facing uh, an indomitable enemy, uh, friendship, all of that, those are the universal themes that never grow old because we as human beings always have them. 
we, we, we keep bringing up Star Trek. If you look back at the original series, the ones that survive the however many years uh, are the ones that have those universal things. You'll have the uh, doomsday machine going up against an enemy you can't, you can't argue with, discuss with, you have to beat it or die. The ones that hold up the poorest are the hippies in space and the soapbox of the weak type of episodes. And I think part of George Lucas's genius was to grab onto those things that are inherent in every culture, every human being, and resonate uh, with the characters, with the, the situations, with the, the life and death struggle. And we can still bring that out. I mean, we're not doing the hero's journey from beginning to end because the hero never has an end. I mean, the story may may end with the hero marrying the princess and, and living in the cal- castle or whatever. But in real life, there's more things to do, and that's what we have been doing as as novelists, uh, comic book writers, etc. We've been exploring, all right, what happens after Return of the Jedi? What happens after the Clone Wars? What happens thousand, you know, 50,000 years ago in the Old Republic? We're... It, it's a rich enough environment that we have – there are lots and lots of stories to tell, all of which we hope will resonate with the fans as the original movies did. All right. So we're going to um, – first of all, let me just, uh, just tell you about a few things. Remind you that first of all, tonight uh, at Emanuel Church, which is right down the street here uh, from our studios here on Woodland Street, under the auspices of the Mark Twain House, all of our guests are, are going to be present and they'll be discussing a whole bunch of other stuff that we're not talking about right now. So it'll be a completely different conversation. That's at 7 p.m. tonight. And, uh, you can still go to that. Emanuel Congregational Church, uh, a conversation about Star Wars uh, with these writers who are here today. I also want to say that um, writer Wyndham – uh, as part of his appearance here in Hartford, is uh, doing a blood drive. Also at Emanuel, right? It's a, yes, yeah, we're down the right. street, street. I'm going to give you uh, some blood uh, because, uh, uh, and I am part Wookie, so I don't know if they'll accept it. But um, uh, so that's that's today till five. Do I have that? Yes, yeah, that's right. Till five p.m. So from now till five p.m., you can go to Emanuel and uh, uh, and, you, and um, uh, thanks for a very generous donation from. Uh, a friend at Hasbro, um, uh, blood donors will receive free Star Wars action figures. So, and there's, and there's, uh, uh, I know there's one Darth Malgus. There's that he looks pretty cool, but there's a uh, uh, lo- lots of uh, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker toys. And um, so, yeah, if uh, any anyone who has blood their own and wants to donate it, they, they should... They yeah, should it's got to be inside your own. Yeah, it has right. to be oh, and, and they have to be able to take it out, too. You can't just oh. show up with blood. Um, it's it's standard rules. Yeah, I know. It's way, way too many rules. So, um, by, we, by, the, by the way, I'm yeah. constrained to point out you talk about Star Trek Next Gen as the place you want to work. Yeah. We do have the ship that bops in and out of time, gets regularly invaded... One of the crew can read your mind. Right. Another one has an evil robotic brother who wants to kill you, and the captain was once a Borg. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure I really want to work there. You're kind of a replicator glass half full kind of person. <laughs> yeah, he really Very much. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, so um, obviously one of the reasons that there's a lot of excitement building, uh, Jason Fry, is uh, it's December 18th, I believe, is the, the Force Awakens. So you guys are all part of this network, and people who – like today there was – 
this, you know, there was a, a kind of re-edit of the trailer that seemed to be for the Asian market. I, I watched it to get ready, and then I watched all the fans going, well, look at that frame there, because that might mean that such and such, and this might mean that such and such. And maybe they're hinting that this guy is going to be this thing. Um, do you guys actually know things that, that, that these poor other speculating fans don't know? Are you keeping secrets? Uh, I, I do know things because I have a couple of books that come out uh, December 18th in conjunction with the movie. But uh, the thing I always tell people, and they never believe me, is that actually is not as much fun as you think it would be. Um, yeah. the, I mean, For me, the fun of a movie, of a book, of any story, is talking about it with your friends. Uh, I love this because X, this didn't work because Y, etc., and knowing things that you've got to keep them secret, particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to things like The Force Awakens. So you don't have anybody to talk about it with, which is actually actually kind of lonely. So you have to wait for everyone else to catch up. So I do know some things, and I'm afraid I, I can't tell you here I, I or at the I wouldn't Mark Twain want event. you to. I, I, yeah. I want to be surprised. I mean, but yeah. there are, there, these, there's people. Actually, we're going to take a break. We have to come back, and we'll talk about the way the fans communicate with you guys and with the franchise itself, and I think it is very fairly characterized as a love-hate relationship. Hi, we're back. We're having a conversation about Star Wars with writers who have been massive contributors to the Star Wars expanded universe. They will be at Emanuel Church tonight at 7 p.m. just down the street, corner of Farmington and Woodland, uh, under the auspices of the Mark Twain House for a different kind of conversation, another conversation. I'm not going to go through all of their credits because it'll take too long. Timothy Zahn, Jason Fry, uh, Michael Stackpole, and uh, writer Wyndham are are all here in the studio with us. So... um, um, uh, how do we how do we get into this? So, actually, I'll just start with myself, um, writer Wyndham. I'm just I'm somebody who you know watched the f- movies as they came out, and um, uh, I and I had um, a very strong, powerful reaction with the original three episodes, four, five, and six, and then one, two, and three came out, and I kind of lost a little bit of interest. They just didn't really resonate so much with me, um, and. And and I talked to even people who are much younger. My son's 26. He sort of felt kind of the same way and is waiting for uh, – I'm waiting for this J.J. Abrams film to kind of um, bring it, bring Star Wars back for me. Um, but, but you guys have been sort of working on this all along and keeping Star Wars very, very alive for the, the fans who love your work and love all this different work. But uh, you must hear this, too, that, you know, that, that, that this, this movie, Episode 7, the one that's coming out December 18th, that maybe it can bring Star Wars back to life. I mean, how do you react to that? Um, I don't know how to react to that. I, I mean, my, um, I really think, I mean, for, um, I don't have any expectations for The Force Awakens. If it's good, that would be fantastic. Um, if it's... But, I mean, to be, um, you know, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm biting the hand that feeds me. I have not thoroughly enjoyed a Star Wars movie since The Empire Strikes Back. And um, it's not to say that I hated the movies. It's just that, I mean, that, that uh, you know, for over 20 years, my interest in Star Wars is, is primarily professional. <laughs> and so that, uh, I mean, there are things, and I, you know, I love to meet fans. I love, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, their enthusiasm. Um, but I think, I mean, for, for uh, 
the expectations or the analysis of the trailers and the things that go on, I, I, I just, I really, I do ignore it because I think, yeah, when the, um, when it comes out, um, you know, I, I, uh, do I, do I hope it's a good movie? Sure. Can I say that I'm especially excited about the new movie? Uh, honestly, no. I mean, it's, a, it's, 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 a, you know, the, the, only, the thing I'm excited about on some selfish level is, well, you know, if they're doing more Star Wars stuff, maybe there's going to be more work for us, which would be nice. <laughs> but that, but I, but I also think, but I think, I mean, will it be successful? Of course it's going to be, you know, an incredible success, I'm yeah, sure. I think it's going to do yeah. okay. Yeah. One, one thing that's very interesting about this, though, is it really is generational uh, in ways that, um, are, are kind of hard to grasp depending where you came in. I mean, I'm 46, so like pretty much anybody, other, any other 46-year-old you ask, my favorite is The Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. But uh, it really is true that there are younger fans who came of age uh, with the prequels, and those are the movies that they love. They just hit them on one level. And I really understood this uh, with my own son, who was kind of hitting that magical Star Wars age with uh, the Clone Wars TV show. And he mm-hmm. loved that. And one of the reasons I think he loved it is because it let him start on the same footing as everybody else. He didn't have to have these years of memories, et cetera. He could just plunge in and, and have a Star Wars of his own. So it would be very interesting to see what the new movie uh, does in terms of that dynamic. Does it hit all the fans? Does it become a favorite of uh, you know of new fans uh, just coming to it now? So I'll be really interested to see how that works. Now, yeah, that's- I'm going to backpedal actually to just because Jason mentioned the Clone Wars. Um I'm a big fan of the Clone Wars animated series. I mean, I, I, I thought there were, I mean, there, there were some great episodes. We're watching it. I thought, um, yeah, that's Star Wars. I mean, I, I guess what my uh, um, uh, my complaint about the prequels, and it's just my own selfish complaint, is that there's too much talking about politics and about Senate meetings and about. I mean, that that um, uh, to me, Star Wars is about a really big spaceship going after a little one. And I, I can understand <laughs> who the bad guys are. And it's very, very clear. To, and it's just sort of, you, you know, you, um, uh, but there, that, uh, I, I didn't, yeah. If, if characters are on there on screen talking too long, I'm not really so interested about the spaceships that are flying around in the background. It's just, it's just, it's too much yak. Well, and Michael, everybody hated Jar Jar Binks, right? I mean, what, why was that? What, 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 compact, what covenant uh, with the fans did Jar Jar Binks See, violate? That, that's the weird thing. It, when, when Phantom Menace was coming out, it, you have to remember, before Phantom Menace came out, George Lucas was absolutely golden. Nobody could lay a glove on him. You couldn't criticize Star Wars. I mean, it was, it was the third rail of movie criticism. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember up it, with Phantom Menace, stuff was so big in March of that year before the May release Lucasfilm cut back all the all the publicity. There was a list of people who were allowed to speak to the press, and very few of us were on that list. I didn't even know I was on the list until I had to check because someone someone asked. And and when Phantom Menace and I went to see a press screening of Phantom Menace, and I watched it. I thought it was a fine film. Jar Jar Binks didn't bother me. You know, I thought it worked. I have a greater tolerance for politics than you do, but uh, writer. So, so you know, the, the politics stuff that, that, you know, gave me some background to what was going on. So, so I was okay with that. Well, all of a sudden, the movie comes out. It still financially does very well, but the critics lit into it, and they lit into Jar Jar Binks having the step and fetch it whole, whole thing going on. Uh, and this was their chance. It was like 20 years of venom that had been saved up 
This was their chance to savage George Lucas. Um, Timothy, I want to hear your comment. I do quickly want to inject, uh, as probably most of you know, I can't believe I know this, but um, that there's like this new theory about Jar Jar Binks as this sort of incredible Jedi on deep cover that nobody really (laughs) understands what an incredible warrior he was. The whole thing was a big act. But what were you going to say? I think the... The, the problem with Jar Jar for me was not that he was irritating. I think in a, in a galaxy the size of Star Wars Galaxy, you're going to have a lot of people who do not speak the Queen's English and are irritating. My problem was he never grew as a character. Yeah. Uh, in the final battle, we have a hint of that when he's talking to Amidala and he says rather quietly, Risa got a good army. Mm. There is a hint of he's starting to recognize something bigger than himself. In the final battle, when he gets unhorsed, as it were. What we needed was for the general to say, we are going to have to surrender, and Jar Jar say, no, they need more time. We keep fighting. Mm. After that, he can be as clumsy as he wants. It's, it's equivalent of if Han had not hung around at the Death Star mm. in case he was needed. He'd just taken his ward and left. We would have said he would be a minor character. He never did anything. He just took his reward and left. Jar Jar needed some growth for the adults. And that's really the key. You know, George at the time, one, got a billion dollars from Pepsi for a five-year license. Mm -hmm. So before a single second of film was shot, those films were the most profitable films ever Mm -hmm. in film history. Okay, so so that was set. Two, George made that film for his children with his children. Um, Tim and I were in Australia at a convention right then uh, with Yukwarshi, who played Captain Panaka. And he said, counter to all the stories that the set was sealed and you couldn't get on, he said, if you showed up, especially with your kids in tow, you got on the set and your kids got made up and put into the film. (laughs) So this was what George wanted to do with his kids. And I suspect that his kids, the sensibility and, and the way he was doing this project, that was what they saw and they had fun with. And that's what they that's what they ran with, and you know, quite frankly, it is his vision. And and let's not forget when uh, you know Gene Roddenberry and what Gene Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek was, and then during the hiatus, we all got a different vision of it, and then it shows back up with the first Star Trek movie, and everybody's going, "Has Gene lost his mind?" And it's like, no, that's Gene's playground. The fact that we expected more things, mm-hmm. you know, is, is it does not does not influence what he wants. I think, though, the best movies are the ones that are layered for children and adults and teens. You watch Pixar do this pretty much every movie. Mm -hmm. Watch The Incredibles again. You see the layering. There's something there for everybody. And I think The Phantom Phantom Menace and and the rest of the prequels were a bit more monotone. Mm -hmm. They, They were more for the children, more for the teens without the layer there for the adults. I think, Jason, also, this really illustrates how difficult it is. If you get lightning in a bottle once, uh, that's a miracle. If you get lightning in a bottle twice or three times, that's incredible. But it's really hard. We've seen this over and over again. I mean, J.J. Abrams, who's being accounted upon to revive Star Wars right now, we, we've we watched him with the series Lost kind of get lost, right? People got really mad. The lost people who really loved Lost thought, "Oh no, 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 no! Wait a minute! Somehow or other, he he got off the the rails." Uh, and and I would say even his most recent Star uh, Trek movie, kind of kind of the one with Benedict Cumberbatch, I sort of thought, "Well, no, this isn't really what the Star Trek is about." You'd think that you would know what the really elemental parts of an incredible sex, successful franchise are, and that you could preserve them and do them over and over again. But I think that's easier to say than it is to really do. 
Yeah, and, and and thank goodness, honestly, because otherwise we wouldn't have lightning in a bottle like that. We wouldn't be surprised in that way, which mm-hmm. is really an enormous fun of going to the movies. But um, one thing I'm thinking about Jar Jar and, and lightning in a bottle that uh, I think brings the conversation back to what we do is, I mean, Jar Jar, how to put this, is, is not perhaps my favorite character in all the movies, mm-hmm. but... Um, one of the benefits of a, a shared universe with a lot of creators and a lot of media is there you can have um, other takes on a character, other takes on a story. Um, there are some uh, Clone Wars episodes where, somewhat to my surprise, Jar Jar is a really kind of interesting, sympathetic character. And they, also hysterical. Yeah. I and mean, that actually makes me laugh. Where, and where, you know, Dave Filoni and Lucas himself were going back to some of the kind of archetypes of storytelling that we touched on earlier, as well as, um, you know, Ryder has written, say, comic stories with well, Jar Jar. So I, there's another yeah. chance to assess these characters in a universe that's this big, mm-hmm. which is really fun, I think, for readers and fans and also for us as writers. I'll 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 jump in, uh, Ryder Windham here. The uh, I think it was it was shortly after the the Phantom Menace was released. Scholastic contacted me and said, uh, "Would you be interested and in available in writing a four book series about Jar Jar Binks and the Gungans?" And this is the difference between being a professional and being a fan. You know, a fan might say like. Why would I want to do that if you didn't like the character? And I thought, like you know, like Jason, I, I mean, Jar Jar wasn't my favorite character, but I thought, hey, this is work. And I also thought, how can I make this interesting for me? Because I, I mean, not not in a selfish way, but you know, to to engage the readers. And all I could think of was, I have to stop thinking about. Jar Jar Binks as a clumsy oaf, which he sort of comes off as in the movies, and thinking of him more as um, someone who wants to help, but he's very clumsy, uh, accident prone, maybe. Um, but then um, I gave there was it's an it becomes an unrequited love story because I thought he's well he's got a crush on Boss Nass's niece, a character I created. Just so that I mean, for for four books, I would string readers along, and they're going to be thinking, "Oh, is is she is she going to like him?" And the answer is, at the end, no, she doesn't. I mean, it was just, and I, I had, um, I mean, years later, people who read this series as children came up to me and said, "You know, I never really liked Jar Jar, but then I read those books and I felt sorry for him." And I said, "Good, that was the goal." You know, it's like it's like that you you found him less annoying, and you thought the stories were fun. And, and that's the really that's the really cool thing is when you have a universe this big, the, there's an immediate fan buy-in, and we really when we do our jobs, we can layer emotions and emotional story arcs and, and roller coasters into things. I mean, I you know in the X-wing books and in, in I Jedi, I've killed off characters who are these minor characters that were invented solely to die in a particular story. But if you do it well, um, it, it impacts the readers. You know, they get very sad. Or as you, as you did, Ryder, you know, you build in that love story and you stretch it out over several books and they want to see that come true. And you'll get, you know, ask questions about it as you're going along. And that is the cool thing. Because everybody buys in, because they know the universe so well, they're just fitting pieces into this outline of a puzzle that they already know and they're looking for that bigger picture. Yeah. And, and, of course, we can have we've got much more room in a book mm-hmm. than you've got in a movie. We can get inside the characters' heads and such. So we've got that palette to paint a deeper story mm-hmm. than any movie maker can do who has to rely on visuals, dialogue, uh, and please, no voiceovers. 
um, <laughs> unless you're MacGyver. Uh, so, yeah, we, we've got tools at our disposal. We just have to do without ILM. Let me ask you about this, and I'll stay with you for a second, Timothy Zahn, but I want to hear from all of you about this. By the way, we're talking about Star Wars. The show's flying by way too fast. Uh, if you wanted to tweet us a question or something, WNPR Colin, uh, our phone number is 860-275-7266. I, I worry that we will not have time to get a call in the air, but do tweet us anyway at WNPR Colin. So I want to talk about that. You know, uh, Michael was talking about the, the buy-in from the fans. So and then, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my sense is that Star Wars is unique in the kind of struggle for ownership control uh, and and w- between creators and fans. Like it's it's not as though people don't have opinions about all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, I have opinions about how Peter Jackson's adopting the Hobbit. You know, uh, but it's not like this, right? That the the fans at a real granular level feel as though I mean, somebody you know, Jason's Jason, you've you essentially never lived in a world that didn't have Star Wars in it. You know, it's just at your age, you know, you don't remember being the introduction of Star Wars. It's just been there. And there's a way in which this is so much closer to some kind of indigenous culture than it is to pop culture. The fans have a proprietary relationship with this. Uh, As you say, it's been part of our culture for decades, and people have very much invested their their lives, their emotions, their intellects into this universe. And when you do that, you you can tend to get a little proprietary towards it and um, be upset if somebody does something you don't agree with. Even the creator himself does something (laughs) you don't agree with. Right, and that raises questions about sort of who really does own and control all this stuff. Lucasfilm. Lucasfilm. Yeah. Well, there, yeah. there, <laughs> no, no question for us. Well, yeah, no, there's, no, no. well there's, there's a new player, though, right? Disney's a new player, right? And Disney's really good at structuring and owning and ordering and cataloging stuff. I mean, it's kind of what they've been doing a lot longer even than Lucasfilm's. But, but they've also learned with Pixar and Marvel – when you buy something, do not screw with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Let the creative people there who know what they're doing do it. Just mm-hmm. you know, back up a dump truck to their house periodically with money <laughs> and collect the two or three dump trucks of money they send back to you. Uh, I, I'm not sure there's any other studio that would have that much hands off. I mean, obviously, they're overseeing everything. They're making sure it's all running according to schedule and, and, and uh, you know, not doing something that would impact badly on the Disney name. But they are, for the most part, letting the creative people create. And I think this, is, this bodes well for, for Star Wars. Yeah, they, it, what you mentioned about um, fans being proprietary, uh, this really hit home for me. Uh, I had a book that came out in September in the, the Journey to the Force Awakens uh, series, The Weapon of a Jedi, which is a Luke Skywalker adventure set right after Episode Four. And it was interesting sitting down at this. I, you know, I felt this. On the one hand, I was over the moon at getting to write Luke Skywalker in the, you know, in the era where I had, you know, made couch forts with my Kenner action figures and done all these things. That was a lot of fun. But you know, I had a, a keen sense of kind of fans looking over my shoulder because, you know, there are fans who have spent their whole lives reading or watching the Adventures of Luke Skywalker, and they are very proprietary about that character. Does he? Does he act right? Does he sound right? And that was pressure. But that was, you know, I I found that actually to be a pretty great kind of pressure to deal with and something to live up to. And I knew exactly how they felt 
because I grew up that way too and felt the same thing. So that was really uh, an interesting experience, but one that turned out to be really rewarding as a writer. Writer Wyndham, what did you think when you realized that Luke and Han and Princess Leia are back in The Force Awakens? I mean, to me, that seems like a way of kind of reaching out one's hand to the fan base and saying, we're going to give you some of the things that you feel like maybe you've been missing. Um, You know, it's, it's I don't know what really to make of that either, because I think part of it, all we can do is say, well, it's very fortunate that the key actors are still alive and interested and willing to do the thing. I mean, I, I mean, so I, um, uh, but but I guess, uh, gosh, um, you know, just knowing that the movie is introducing obviously a lot of new mm. characters, younger characters. You know, so I, I, am I curious to find out how the, uh, the 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 older characters, you know, what will happen with them? Mm. Um, sure, I'm I'm interested. The Something uh, too, uh, I guess, to, to bring up is that because um, uh, I forgive me, I can't remember whether it was Timothy or, or Michael who mentioned doing stories after Return of the Jedi. That uh, uh, it was last year that Disney Lucasfilm announced that all these expanded universe stories for thirty years plus. Uh, you know, essentially all the stories, they, they said, oh, you know, we're just wiping the slate clean. We're starting over. Um, and I, a lot of fans have asked me, how do you feel about that? All those stories that you wrote, they've been, you know, relegated to legends status, whereas the, these uh, the, the sort of what new continuity approved stories, they're, they're, that's the canon division. And I, I said, my only interest in Star Wars stories is is the one that I'm working on right now going to lead to another assignment? <laughs> um, and so, you know, for, so for you know all those years, I was never concerned about, oh, is this the the true thing? But, um, but I mean, one of the things that we all knew that the fans did not know, but we all knew that our stuff was not canon. We knew the movies were canon. We knew that the comics and toys and games and and novels all had to be interconsistent with each other and with that. But we all knew it wasn't canon. So it was no shock to us when they said, sorry, this isn't canon. The movies will not be governed by it. It was a big shock to the fans, and I don't think anybody there really figured that out. Timothy, go ahead, yeah. and then we're going to take a break. But, yeah. but it's not that they have just said it doesn't exist anymore. What they've By calling it Legends, we've put it into the realm of King Arthur and uh, Robin Hood. Apocrypha. Said, yeah, well, think of this as there was a, a massive flood in the basement of the Coruscant Records office building, and all these records got sogging. We can't confirm these things actually happened. But by calling them legends, we simply can't confirm. Anytime they want to come pull something out of these and put it into a movie or a TV show or, or another book, they can do that with a minimum of effort. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come back with more of these writers. Time is, oh boy, time is really flying by. That's not good. All right, we'll be back. These people are totally disconnected from reality. Why don't they get their noses out of this Star Wars nonsense and do something in the real world, like lust after Mariska Hargitay. Mmm, Mariska Hargitay. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, with nerd input from nerd masters Patrick Scahill and Tucker Ives, who are both nerds. Our interns are Zachary LaSala, Amanda Gallagher, and Sarah Flaherty. 
Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Greg appeared in the intro along with Patrick, Dan Schultz, and Sarah Flaherty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mace Windu. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Here and Now staff in their Star Wars pajamas and Chewbacca slippers, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we're back. Uh, we're talking to our writers who have helped create uh, the Star Wars expanded universe. Uh, Jason Fry, Michael Stackpole, Ryder Windham, and Timothy Zahn. They are going to be together with John Ostrander. Trying to make John feel as left out as possible uh, that he wasn't on this show. Uh, but he'll be joining them uh, tonight uh, at the Emanuel Congregational Church at 7 p.m., which will introduce a completely different dynamic, too, than what you've seen here. So uh, show up tonight at 7 p.m. at Emanuel, Emanuel Congregational Church for this great event. And um, Ryder Windham and I also want you to go down to Emmanuel Church before that, between now and 5 p.m., to give blood at a blood drive that he is um, helping to sponsor. And thanks to Hasbro, uh, you might just get a Star Wars action figure. Or, or a signed book. We or have, we have, we, there's, uh, we, we have uh, another a publisher donated books I found out yesterday, and the, the, the books arrived in time. So if you want a, uh, a free signed Star Wars book, um, you know, in, in, the, in the little... Uh, break there, I overheard something about why are these guys talking about Star Wars? Why don't they you know, do something? It's like, hey, I organized a blood drive. <laughs> come, please, come, come give blood. Well, yes. And, and the, well, the, she was saying, why don't you do something in real life like lusting after Mariska Hargitay? Uh, hey, so, we can multitask, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the, the Empire did a lot of uh, blood drives. They just weren't volunteers. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of Mariska Hargitay, uh, we got a tweet from uh, Katie. Uh, how do your guests view the role of women evolving uh, in Star Wars? And how do they think about creating role models for, for both genders? Obviously, watching the, the trailer for Force Awakens, we can tell there are going to be uh, some strong female characters. But I would assume also elsewhere well, in the expanded universe. Yeah, well, well, literally, when I, was, when I was tasked with creating Rogue Squadron, one of the things they said is, you know, we want humans, we want aliens, we want males, we want females. You know, it was they wanted to represent everything. And, and uh, so I created a number of strong characters. I mean, Tim with Mara Jade, you know, it created probably the, the strongest female character this side of uh, Princess Leah in terms yeah. of uh, fan response. And it was not something that was suggested to me. Just, OK, I want to write a book. I want uh, strong men, strong women, no, no screaming, helpless, anything. And except possibly 3PO, and uh, <laughs> uh, just went on from there. Um, I, I actually, yeah. I'll, I'll, I got a, um, there was a, the, uh, the last juvenile novel that I wrote was about the character Ezra Bridger from Star Wars Rebels, and I got three messages or interviews, people taking me to task, like, why wasn't there a significant female character in your book? And... Um, it was. It caught me off guard because I thought, well, if you look at my other books, you'll find that I, you know, it's, it's not like I, I, I make an effort of it. It's just like other books have female characters. This particular book, it's like you know, my my the the directive I was given is. Ezra Bridger is a loner without friends, <laughs> yeah. um, and so I, I said, if you read the book, I mean, there, there's like there are there's a couple of female characters, and there's um, some aliens, and but I said most of the char- like mo- most of the secondary characters in that book wind up not surviving that story, and I just it's it's, it's odd, you it, know. It, just, there, there's a peanuts old peanuts cartoon where Sally's uh, has read a book about George Washington, but I didn't like it because it didn't mention Abraham Lincoln. I've always sort of been interested in Abraham Lincoln. Well, and it, that's one of the other things is that when we do work in someone else's universe, sometimes we're given a directive that doesn't allow us, you know, that amount of leeway. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that's that's. I mean, I did a World of Warcraft novel, and the uh, some guys reviewed it in an incredibly long and turgid podcast. Uh, but their main complaint was I didn't use the characters that they would have used. Yeah. Well, that wasn't my job. Right. My right. job was write this story. So yeah, but I, you know, it's interesting. I think Star Wars, but was ahead of its time back in the day, and is has done a pretty good job of, of staying that way. I mean, as as someone who saw the original film when I was eight, I think that was a really interesting age for that. And you know, there on screen, Princess Leia was the boss, and nobody really said boo about it, and that made perfect sense to me. So I think that was a a good thing, and I think Star Wars is not done in that respect yet. So, to, to, to be fair, though, I mean that Princess Leia was the only female action figure for the original Star Wars line of toys. But you look at you know since uh, I mean, there's even Mara Jade action figures, oh, limited yeah, edition yeah. statues. I mean, she's you know uh, yeah incredibly popular. So um, and that the, there are scads of female characters in the Star Wars galaxy. So that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, um, it, it's, uh, but, but again, the, the point being be, before you go chewing out writers who work on licensed property, be aware that, yeah, they are often working under certain guidelines and directives. Absolutely. We have to stop here, uh, but we, uh, but the conversation will keep going tonight at 7 p.m. Thanks to the Mark Twain house. Uh, it'll be going at Emanuel Congregational Church right down the street. Uh, also, uh, I'll remind you about the blood drive. Blood drive is uh, for the rest of the day until 5 p.m., also at Emanuel Congregational Church. And you might get something, some memento that you can trade for your blood. Uh, or you can just give your blood. I mean, that's also nice, too. Thanks very much to our guest today, uh, to Betsy uh, Kaplan also for putting this whole thing together, and, of course, to Patrick Scahill for staying on his home planet. Timothy Zahn, Jason Fry, and Michael Stackpole, and Ryder Wyndham. They'll be tonight at Emanuel Congregational Church. Hey girl, I must be from Alderaan because you just blew up my world. Where is Alderaan? How can you be from an ice planet when you're so hot? That reference, I, I don't... Do you understand the binary language of moisture vaporators? Because I'd like to program your binary load lifter. Oh, how soon can we get to your place? 